This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Master along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. And we got to talk about the virus. You and I just kind of rehashed some of the headlines. But one of the big ones is the Moderna news today. Yeah, it seems like every Monday we're getting some big vaccine news, doesn't it? It does seem like every Monday. It's like everybody working over the weekend, like we got to get it out. It's like a deal, right? Yeah. Like we got to get it out. Let's um, get into it because we do still continue to see cases soaring. Globally, we see a pullback, shutdown of economies. Uh, let's bring in someone who has been a friend of our show, Dr. Sandra Galea. He's dean and professor at Boston University School of Public Health. He's author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. And he joins us once again on the phone from Boston. Dr. Galea, great to have you here here with Tim and myself. How are you? I am uh, I am very well, all things considered, Carol. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. Well, tell me how Boston is. I mean, I think, you know, we're all like, wait, we've seen this movie before. Here we go again. Yeah, I think it's fair to say Boston is a bit on the edge of its seat, that uh, we have had, like the rest of the country, a- another wave. For Boston, it's probably the second wave. It's been very attenuated compared to the first uh, wave, which we had in uh, March, April, and May. And it has stayed relatively lower than it was then. And But I think everybody is anxious. Everybody is uh, nervous. And I think the mayor and the governor have been suitably cautious, taking steps to try to contain the epidemic. As of right now, touch wood, I think things remain relatively contained here. But I think everybody, like myself, is sort of holding their breath and waiting for tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Yeah. And Dr. Glay, I wonder, too, what you were thinking, what was going through your head when you saw those images of people in the airport last week. We had more people check into TSA last week than at any point since March before the pandemic hit, traveling despite what they heard from public health officials. What were you thinking? Terrifying. I'm going to tell you yeah. that's what I was thinking. What were you thinking? Well, it, it, you know, it, really, it really depends. It depends on what people were doing. The, we, we know that air travel in and of itself is relatively safe. In fact, the number of cases spread through air travel are very few. They really are at the level of case studies. It really depends on, on where people were going and well, the uh, concern who they were was, hanging uh, out with. I think the concern was that they were going to travel to spend time with their family during the holidays, which we were told not to do. Well, that's well. That's the issue. The issue. The issue is. The issue is. Are people spending a lot of time in large groups without taking precautions, without wearing masks, being indoors? And that's what we know is fueling spread. What's fueling spread is large gatherings indoors. The travel in and of itself is uh, is perhaps an indicator of that. But I, I would like to give people the benefit of the doubt that uh, that everybody was being careful and being suitably responsible. Of course, time will tell. We shall see whether there are. Um, suitable, um, where there are spikes that follow uh, the Thanksgiving weekend. Well, so I wonder, you know, Sandra, do you anticipate that, you know, I don't know, is it a week from now, 10 days where we'll get an idea if we see that Thanksgiving bump? We shall. Yeah, we should. We should know this. If, if there is a Thanksgiving bump, we should know in about a week to 10 days. You know, we have to be very careful about interpreting these data. For example, there's been yeah. a lot written in the American media about the Canadian Thanksgiving bump. Right. But if you look at the Canadian, but if you look at the Canadian data, it's, that's not accurate. In fact, the Canadian data were that there was a steep acceleration before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving happened and the acceleration continued. So there really was no clear evidence of a Thanksgiving bump in Canada. So I, I, I think we need to be. I think we need to be very clear in our public health messaging that uh, that we spread the virus 
by being indoors in unventilated areas with a lot of people coming from all over the place, um, hanging out together. Like radio yeah, studios? As long as we have, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going I'm to ask you how many, how many of you there are there, Tim. Uh, well, we are uh, socially distanced, distanced and they're, they're, we clean our studios. We have air purifiers. <laughs> there, there you go. But, but if, people, if people are careful for that, if people are careful for that, I think uh, we, we should be able to get through this without seeing unnecessary increases. But I do think there is a danger. There's a danger to telling people that they should not do things that are fundamentally natural, that are that are essential for people to go on with a semblance of daily life. So I, I think the message has to be nuanced, and we have been failing at providing a nuanced message in this country. Well, you know, it's interesting. I feel like that there's been a lot of momentum, and Tim, I don't know if you're hearing this too, but about education, that yeah. we've maybe made some mistakes at the, you know, education, and I don't know how you see it, uh, I Sandra. Think we've made big, I think we've made big mistakes in yeah. education, and, and, and there have been... And there have been, and we've discussed this on your show, Carol. I've yeah. said consistently that that, that the schools should be open. That uh, the evidence that children transmit uh, coronavirus is very low. Children do not really get sick from coronavirus. And there have been new analyses coming out now. For example, that the number of years of lives that will life will, that will be lost eventually due to the lower educational attainment of of children now probably dwarfs the number of years of lives lost due to coronavirus. And and these mm. are kind of analyses that we can do. So so we have. Look, when COVID hit, coronavirus hit in March of 2020, we were all in enormous panic. And we did everything that we could think of, essentially shut down the world to protect ourselves. And that was reasonable. That was a crisis. But it's now December. We're no longer in a crisis. We need to be approaching this judiciously, carefully and thoughtfully and say, we know how this disease is spread. How do we minimize the ways the disease is spread? And how do we reopen parts of society that we can reopen safely? Well, it does seem like public health officials and, and, and government leaders are starting to change the way they're thinking as we do get more information. We saw right. Bill de Blasio learning, over right? the weekend say, wait a second, Correct. we can reopen schools. I mean, how did you read into that, doctor? I, I thought it was exactly what you just said, Tim, that, uh, that uh, we are beginning to get wiser and smarter about this. Bill de Blasio had, of course, the 3% case positivity uh, line, red line that he had drawn because of negotiations with the unions, is our understanding. Well, hard to know where 3% comes from. WHO says 5%. There's no magic number, of course. And it, it, was, it, it was a line of convenience. And I think what he came to is the evidence is so overwhelming that children are missing out by not going to school, particularly poor and disadvantaged children, that it really should be the burden, the overwhelming burden of proof should be on something extraordinary that makes us close schools, not closing schools by default. And and I think he's right. I think he's right in changing his mind. And I think we collectively, this is why I push back about Thanksgiving. I think we have to be careful about saying, yeah. well, what what is the high-risk activity? Flying is not really a high-risk activity. The high-risk activity is gathering indoors, unmasked, without being careful here, you get into it. And that's what we should minimize. It is Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. So we got to talk Moderna. Yeah, I mean, you heard Charlie just now saying shares of Moderna are higher by 17% on this. Yeah, investors pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, so Dr. Galea, so here we are, Moderna, uh, a second press release. Someone said to me, or I was listening to an interview earlier, a second press release in two weeks, but they've still not released some really key data points. Um, tell me how you read the Moderna, Moderna news. Well, I think there's no there's no way of reading it, but as very good news. Okay. Now, of course, we still need to know some of the fine print. But Moderna and Pfizer both use uh, similar approaches to come up with very similar answers in terms of effectiveness. This is a really dramatically good news. Who uses mRNA technology, which didn't exist for a vaccine as recently as a year ago? So, I do think that it 
it makes COVID a triumph of biomedical science. Of course, it leaves COVID an utter failure of a lot of other forms of science, mm. social sciences, and a lot of ways in which we've controlled it, but that's another discussion. But from a vaccine point of view, the fact that we are this close to having a vaccine that can be widely distributed is remarkable in such a short period of time. And I do think it creates an opportunity for there to be rapid vaccine development in the future. So this is very good. Now, there are details that still need to come out. Obviously, there needs to be FDA approval, but there is no indication that the FDA process has been corrupted by political interference. All indications to my mind are that this will be a rigorous, fair, robust process, one that we can all trust. Well, it does seem like the vaccine development process here has just been nothing short of incredible from many different companies. But I wonder about the actual distribution and delivery of the vaccine. We saw a lot of stories, including in Bloomberg over the weekend, about what airlines are doing around the world to to try to be ready for those vaccines to bring them to far-flung parts of the world. When do we get this vaccine is a question that keeps coming up. When does that happen, doctor? Well, when, when, when you heard the uh, chair of Operation uh, Warp Speed speaking, um, I think it was today or yesterday, he said that the first, he anticipates the first people to get vaccinated December 9th or 10th. That is essentially a week and a half. And that doesn't seem unreasonable. Now, that, that of course, is quite different than Tim than when you and Carol and I right. will be getting it. Right. But I think it's reasonable to say that uh, assuming that there are no un- unanticipated hurdles, there will be widespread vaccination by Q2 of uh, 2021. So that means okay. in spring of 2021. Now, the question is, when do we get to a Did- functional normal? And functional normal means enough of our, us are vaccinated to get to herd immunity. And herd immunity probably means about 70% of us. And in- that, we're, we're looking at maybe summer, maybe summer. What about when it comes to, to kids? Because one issue that these trials have is is who is in the trials and who's not in these clinical trials, right? right? Like not pregnant women uh, and and not kids. So so when do kids? What is the vaccine development process like and distribution process when when kids start getting new vaccines? Yeah, and and these are some of the questions that the FDA will will have to be addressing, and and we, we will see we'll see what emerges from that. I I don't know the details of the data that are collected. My anticipation is that uh, there will be guidance on that, and that, that there will be groups like pregnant women, for example, but the FDA will have to look at the side effect profile and make a determination about for, about for whom is the vaccine is the vaccine safe. Dr. Galea, I'm amazed at the amount of people who are smart, educated, who come up to me and like, will you take the vaccine? Like, there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of nervousness. Uh, I was having conversations this morning, like, right? Not the typical anti-vaxxer crowd having no. these questions. Right. So yeah, are, are yeah, you worried about that? Well. Yeah. It, wor- it worries me. I, I suppose my hope, Carol, is that is that once the vaccine is no longer sort of this this mythical mythical object in the clouds, once it becomes right. concrete, once once we start seeing people taking it, once you start seeing the once you see the president elect or president take it, then it, it will remove a lot of that fear, a lot of that stigma. Now, will there be some segment of the population that will not take it? Yes, but remember, we don't need everybody to take it. We really need herd immunity. Maybe seventy percent of people. It'd be nicer if it's higher. So we do not need everybody to take it. So I'm on the uh, the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, health and I should say National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, and I'm because I Googled Elvis Presley polio shot. Remember that iconic mm-hmm. shot of, of yeah. him right, getting, getting the polio it. vaccine? I imagine right now we're going to have like Instagram influencers totally. who are actually getting the vaccine, and I think that would actually go a long way. And I think we need public health officials thinking about how we can get this message out to the general public. Right, and getting communities. Uh, uh, Go ahead. 
I agree. I agree completely. I actually think that's exactly what will happen. And when you look at when you look at social change of public health interventions and uptake of interventions, that's what happens. You have whatever the social media of the time is. You have influencers. You have politicians. You have celebrities. You have campaigns, and all of that will make a big difference. Right. We've heard that about like politicians going out, like local politicians going out to communities. You know, yeah. where people trust different individuals. Sandra, always, always wonderful to check in with you. Stay safe, uh, and we'll be in touch soon. Dr. Sandra Golay, a dean and professor at Boston University School of Public Health. Check out his book, Pained Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. That's a really key point. I think there's going to be huge influencers like showing, I got the vaccine. There needs to be. And there, there also needs to be politicians and, and members mm-hmm. of Congress doing this too. Yep, stepping up. Because there's so much skepticism. Yeah, I agree with you. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Tim Stenevec of Bloomberg Quick Take. And so, Tim, it sounded like a good idea, maybe even a great idea back in the spring when the Fed kind of came out with this bold plan. They were going to save mid-sized firms that were getting kind of lost in the cracks caused by COVID. Great idea, but as it turned out, not a great reality, right? Yeah, so says Christopher Condon and our colleagues at Bloomberg Business Week, who have a new article out called The Fed Effort to Save Mid-Sized Firms Isn't Working, and Here's Why. Chris Condon is Federal Reserve and U.S. Economy reporter. He joins us on the phone in Virginia, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. Joel, great idea, but not so when you take a look at how it played out. Well, I got to just start with, you know, like of all the, of the, of all the people and organizations who have um, been heroes this year, I think the Fed goes <laughs> yes. right near the top. So <laughs> totally. So that's really important to start with. So let's preface with that. But do you think Jay Powell is listening? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, he's always listening, right? He is always um, whether listening. or not he, he wants to acknowledge us is a different matter. But um, <laughs> you know, the I think the 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 thing that Chris really hit on here is that you know they they did an enormous amount of good, but there's also sort of a a, a size of company that the Fed has effectively not been able to help as much, and that's the mid-sized company. Um, so, Chris, what, what did you guys discover as you dug into this line of reporting? Right. Joel, you're right. This was kind of the bridge too far for a central bank during a crisis. Um, I think what it really comes down to is it, it, it gets very difficult when you ask a central bank to extend emergency credit outside of capital markets. Capital markets have their own established structures and commoditized instruments that the Fed can simply step into and act like a safety net. And they reassure all of the normal participants to get going again and do what they normally do. But if you're working, if you're trying to extend credit outside capital markets, you have to do it one by one. So the Fed, in this case, does not obviously have the personnel or systems to do one-by-one loan underwriting. So they had to turn to banks. And to make the bank underwriting reliable, they had to make sure the banks had skin in every loan. And if you make the the banks have skin in every loan, that means they have risk and they want a certain reward. And now you're getting into a, a, a situation of tension between how much reward does the lender get and how attractive is it also to the borrower? And despite all their efforts, the Fed really just could never find a formula for this program that would make the lending attractive both for the banks that were trying to cover some risk. And don't forget, this, this program had a big backstop provided by the Treasury. But that backstop was there only for the Fed, not for the banks. Hmm. And then so, people would say, well, the, 
Fed was buying out 95% of the loans. But in doing so, they didn't really change the risk-to-reward calculus on each dollar of loans from the bank. It only, I like to say, it would take a $20 million crappy loan and turn it into a $1 million crappy loan. And the bank didn't want that. Right. So they, they never really were able to thread the needle and get all the parties into something that felt attractive. So, so what ends up happening to these small and medium, medium-sized businesses that, that needed this money? Well, many of them have just either limped on. Um, some, I'm sure, have, have gone out of business. Many have laid off people. There's just a lot of economic suffering that is happening here. A lot of, uh, and it just what the Fed is trying to avoid, the long-term scarring of the economy, of the labor market. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, this is, a lot of people will say this was avoidable if folks had realized right at the beginning that what this layer of the economy needed um, was, was not lending. Let's face it, we were, you're talking about companies that could not get access to regular bank loans. They're, they were struggling too much. What they did not need was more debt. What they needed was transfers from the government to help them bridge a stressful period. So yeah. if you, you can't convince Congress to appropriate taxpayer money to help bridge these companies through the way they did for small companies with the Paycheck Protection Program, then you're, you, it looks, this shows that you're not going to get very far uh, if you try to rope in the Federal Reserve, which, of course, cannot give away money. It can only lend money. Right. So let's, Chris, let's let's go into kind of fantasy mode here um, and, and talk about, you know, there's some changes that are going to happen at Treasury. Um, there's been conversations already about, you know, the Treasury's clawback of that Fed money. How could the how could the Fed effectively sort of attempt to address this midsize company uh, as we look ahead to 2021? Well, there are a couple of different avenues that have been suggested. Uh, if it still involves the Fed. Eric Rosengren, who is president of the Boston Fed, which is the, the, the portion of the Fed that administered this program, has suggested that, that Congress needs to be very explicit in telling both the Treasury and Fed that it can lose money with this program, that they need to take more risk, not the banks involved, but they need to take more risk, and that Congress would be willing to back them up and cover them um, but that's, you know, again, we're talking about a, a fiscal policy decision from elected officials is required. Uh, uh, others, we also talked to uh, Bharat Ramamurthy, who was a democratically appointed member of the commission that Congress created to oversee CARES Act spending. And he really thinks that they should just throw in the towel on the Main Street program and Congress should uh, come together and appropriate a certain amount of money into a grant program, a grant-making program. Maybe it would be a guaranteed loan program, which some of it would, would morph into lo- uh, grants. Um, but something that's, that's more congressional transfers directly to companies that are struggling through this, what's obviously going to be a continued tough period until the vaccines are available. So in many ways, it circles back over and over to Congress, and they, they shouldn't be um, 
dazzled by the idea of levering up money with the Fed. They, they should realize that what is much more effective right. is perhaps a smaller amount transferred directly to companies. Um, yeah, direct cash always is kind of a good thing. We're hearing that a lot now. <laughs> I'm up for it. Um, Chris, we're going to leave it there. It's a great read, and it's just a reminder. I mean, we didn't have the playbook, but you really do wonder about, um, we know small business important to the economy, mid-sized businesses important probably to the economy as well, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely important. And they just don't have the same tools that the large, huge companies we talk about each day have. Right, exactly. And have really been forgotten in this. And you do wonder with the next round of stimulus, whether it um, or aid helps them out. All right, we're going to leave it there. Chris Condon, thank you so much at Bloomberg News, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Bloomberg Business Week on this Monday. Carol Master, along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tim, we recently heard about a new position in the upcoming Biden administration. It is the first climate czar in the U.S. We're talking about President-elect Joe Biden naming John Kerry. This is a big deal. It's a big deal, and it's a big name for the it, position. Exactly. And it brings to him, I mean, he, several positions, Secretary of State, uh, Senator, uh, almost President. Um, so there's a lot in terms of his own experience that he brings to this position. Well, it's totally a global issue. Yes. So it makes sense to have a resume like his. Totally. Along with somebody who, who takes the job. Which is exactly what our Bloomberg New Economy editorial director, Andy Brown, writes about in his column this week. Andy joins us on the phone in New York City. Andy, nice to have you here uh, with Tim and myself. Tell us about your thinking about John Kerry and what kind of message this is sending perhaps to China as well. Yeah, so everybody has focused on the idea that, you know, that climate has been elevated to a national security issue, given the fact that John Kerry is going to sit in the National Security Council as climate czar. Um, but there's also another really important message that it sends, and it's a message to China. Um, uh, John Kerry has been very clear that he thinks that the U.S. and China need to figure out some area on which they can cooperate. Um, and climate um, is, is, a, is a promising area. I mean, he's, he, he wrote a piece just a couple of weeks ago for the New York Times saying that U.S. and China need to work together to preserve the Southern Ocean, to save the Southern Ocean in Antarctica. And he has a long track record of hands-on engagement with China to fix problems. And it dates all the way back to at least the, 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 the most notable most notable recent episode was in 2014 when he figured out a way to get China and the U.S. to sign an agreement to limit their carbon emissions. And that was the deal that paved the way for the 2015 Paris agreements. So he has a track record of success in this area. Well, it does seem like the Biden administration, one thing is for certain that they will inherit a lot to do with China in the sense of a trade war that we've been in for years at this point. How does John Kerry help ease the tension with it on a trade war by using climate discussions? Yeah, so I think the, the assumption is that um, the, the tensions that have bedeviled the U.S.-China relationship under Donald Trump are not going to go away under a Biden presidency. And in fact, uh, they may actually be exacerbated, particularly in the area of human rights as it mm. relates to Hong Kong and the national security law and the detention camps in Xinjiang and so on. 
And in order to prevent these problems spiraling into a crisis, into confrontation, potentially even military confrontation, um, you need to figure out how you can mitigate some of those tensions by working together in discrete areas. And climate, of course, is hardly a discrete area, given that it crosses almost every other area of, of, of policy and arguably is the, the greatest threat to, uh, uh, to humanity. So, you know, it is a big project working with China, but it's not the only area. I mean, there's pandemics, uh, there's mass migration, but you know, a lot of people are suggesting that climate is the most fruitful area that the two countries can work together on, particularly since they're now both aligned, the U.S. under a Biden presidency and China, on the need to get to, to carbon neutrality. Xi Jinping, the China, Chinese president, has promised to do that by 2060. Biden talks about doing it by 2050. Well, you know, and that's what I think, you know, Andy, just coming off the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which, you know, you and your team put together, it was incredible, uh, a roundup of, of global speakers, you know, and one of the pillars was all about climate. Like, it feels like something is different from even the Obama administration, the few years that have passed, that we are seeing increasingly the impact of climate change on our environment, and it's hard for global leaders to ignore. And so you do wonder... China and the United States, where they can really step up on the global stage and really make a difference here. Yeah, well, you now have this alignment, as you say, with between the U.S. and China, but also Europe. Mm -hmm. So you've got large parts of the planet that are pulling together uh, on, you know, towards carbon neutrality, and and all of them putting in place programs for a green recovery. Uh, from the pandemic, even though, as we did discuss in the New Economy Forum, China is worryingly in the short term trying to juice growth by building coal-fired power stations. Nevertheless, it's also installing at an incredibly rapid rate solar and wind, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and doubling down on, on renewable uh, uh, energy technologies. Well, and I do wonder, you know, how they will use business policy, trade policy, the U.S., maybe the world, to get China to do what they need to do when it comes to climate. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure the. I'm not sure the leverage works in that direction. I really do think it's more a question of we know that we are going to have these problems, and and, and as we heard in, in the New Economy Forum, Henry Kissinger warning yeah. that that unless we can figure out how to collaborate, you know, we we could we could be looking at a World War One situation. Which is terrifying. Really more a question of we know we've got problems. Let's work on something where where there is a potential joint solution. What about the critics who who say that Kerry, uh, as is during his time as senator, it's too soft, right? Yeah, exactly. What it, what about them? Uh, yeah, well, you know, the uh, clearly, clearly there is there's a great deal of skepticism uh, within the political establishment, both both on the Democrat and the Republican side, on 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 working with China, um, and it's not it's it's. It, it, it's not going to be easy. And from the Chinese side, um, you know, but Biden in many ways is their worst nightmare because what he what he promises to do is bring together U.S. allies and friends to confront China. So we've already seen he's he said, you know, he wants a, a summit of democracies sometime next year. 
The EU has just written to Biden proposing a summit in the first half of the year, uh, bringing together it's, it's a once-in-a-generation once opportunity to build a coalition with, with the United States, a sort of transatlantic axis. And although they say they don't mention China, it's very clear uh, that, this, uh, that, this, that this axis, um, and indeed Biden's council, the summit of democracies, is intended to counter the threat from China. Right. Yeah, so much. Uh, and it'll be interesting to watch in terms of how this policy ultimately uh, works its way through in the new administration. Hey, Andy, thank you so much. Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown with us on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, so it is time for the drive to the close. I'm Carol Masser with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. And we want to bring in J.J. Kinahan, who's chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. Uh, J.J., back with us, joining us on the phone from Chicago. J.J., nice to have you here. How's it going in Chicago? Always a pleasure. I saw some great pictures of your uh, turkey on Thanksgiving. It was absolutely delicious. It was Very really good. Nice. My, my husband's an incredible cook. It was a great turkey. We also did a picnic good. table for the squirrel. We had a little bit too I much time that. on our hands. <laughs> we were a little crazy. No wine involved. I'm just going to tell you that. Um, Chicago, though, virus. I'm just curious how your world and what's around you is kind of impacting how you think about the financial markets. Well, you know, I, I think it's very interesting right now in the fact that it feels like it's always uh, vaccine Monday. Every Monday yeah. we seem to be getting some news one way or the other on Which it. Which is good. But as we're, yeah, we're seeing in Illinois and in Chicago that the cases are coming down a little bit. But as we know, God bless the healthcare workers have been really overworked over the last few months. And uh, you're just hoping, hoping uh, a flattening out is really all we need to see. I think if you get a flattening out for the holidays, that's a victory. I agree. To be very honest with you. And so if we can get that, and, you know, clearly the market has looked beyond the uh, vaccine onto all the great things that can happen. The thing that makes me nervous about doing so is we know that it's going to be a logistical circus mm. to get things where they need to be. And so I just warn people not to get caught up too much in the euphoria. It's wonderful we have these vaccines, and I hope they can get out as quickly as possible. But we all know that the logistics are usually where the true test will, will come. Yeah, I mean, and I wonder, too, just about because we've seen this year in be the, really the year of the retail investor, J.J., if we're seeing retail investors stay in the market despite not having the stimulus payments and get in on the vaccine run-up that we've seen in the month of November? You know, it's interesting, Tim. Obviously, we've had, as you said, it's been an incredible year in terms of volume and interest for the uh, uh, retail investor. What was really interesting to me was when I looked at Friday. And the reason Hmm. I'm calling out Friday specifically is because this tends to be a slow week in every area of uh, of the market. And, you know, uh, obviously, you would expect uh, some fall off throughout the week. We saw it fairly busy all week. That's so interesting. Friday. That is we really saw, weird. We saw people, yeah, 
it was so strange. When I saw the numbers at the end of the day, I thought we'd made a mistake. Is, I wonder I'm if like, this is because, this is well, I wonder if this is because day. people weren't out shopping at Black Friday. And it was so, sort of similar to the narrative that we saw play out over the summer, right? People are stuck at home. They have stimulus payments, or stimulus trading. checks, and they're trading. They're not yeah. watching sports. Right. Is that what you think oh, happened? Well, that, that could be part of it. But this is one of the first times when we've actually competed with sports because it was sports on during the day Friday, which you normally don't have. So, uh huh. It, it, they, they could play DraftKings or whatever you know sporting site they may want to go to. So I actually think that's a good sign going forward that people continue to have an interest in this market overall. And it's not you know there's been so much made in the media of it being people just come in and take day, just day trading. I think we're seeing much beyond that. In fact, as I look at some of the you know stocks that people bought last week, Apple leading the way, Tesla, which our clients have been buying for years, Mod- now, you, you do have Moderna and Palantir, which, you know, you could argue haven't been as much uh, over years, but their technology is also a little bit newer in both cases. So I think there is a very healthy mix of people who are in it for shorter-term and longer-term investors. I think the longer-term investor has been sort of ignored in all of this because it's not as sexy a story. So that's really interesting. So that's what your clients were buying on Black Friday. Palantir, Tesla, Moderna, and Apple. That's where you saw action. Correct. Huh. Yeah. That's just really fascinating. Uh, I feel like that's kind of our world in a nutshell, to be quite honest. Yeah, it is. I mean, if there are companies that we've <laughs> no, been talking about no, for years, of course, s- Apple. But Tesla has been the, the name for November. Exactly. And 2020, to be quite yeah. honest. I mean, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and Apple remains still the number one held stock in our firm, Carol. Sorry, sorry to jump in there, but no, no, no. I, think, I think you're making a really important point. Right, and Palantir, right? That's the Teal company, right? Peter Teal. Like, it's just kind of fascinating. Well, okay, so Dave Wilson was on earlier. He talked about his chart of the day and talked specifically about the S&P 500, 20-year-old valuation peak, uh, and we're talking about price to sales. I mean, do you get a little concerned when you start to look at the valuations of the marketplace? Yeah, I, I, I think you have to be a little bit concerned, uh, but and here's why. I think you saw it reflected a little bit in this earnings season. And what I mean by that exactly is think about the stocks that were uh, considered essential businesses, the Home Depots, the Walmarts of the world. Their numbers were absolutely monstrous again this quarter, mm. yet their stocks sold off on that. Mm. I think we may come to a point where we see a similar thing in the entire S&P 500. Where, yes, these, these stocks, if when people get back to work, when we go back to, you know, air quotes, normal world, uh, that things are going well. But can we keep, can, can the reality meet the expectation? Because I think at some point, even though the, the numbers might be great and they might have great sales, et cetera, at that point, people might say, well, yeah, but I already expected this. Right. You have to beat this in order for me to want to buy more. And I think that's one of the bigger risks as we head into the spring and early summer of next year is that the reality won't be able to keep up with the expectation. JJ, I want to talk Slack here. It's a, it's one of the stocks that you mentioned in, in your recent article. Um, of course, CNBC is reporting that a deal for Slack from Salesforce could come as soon as Tuesday after the close. We're also expecting earnings. What are you keeping an eye on when you see this type of M&A? Uh, I think it's actually great. You know, we saw, uh, a, 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 I feel like it's kind of shift. It's still in the technology sector. Think about it. We just had the chips all go through, what was that, a month and a half, two months ago? Totally. Now we're going to other areas of technology where people are sitting on cash. They're not quite sure what to do with it. It, it, it may be, okay, 
we've invested all we can in what we do well. Are there businesses which fit into what we do? We can continue with our scale of distribution, cut some costs out of, and really make our offering one that's very well-rounded. So in this case, on its surface, it certainly does seem to make a lot of sense that that is exactly the model that Salesforce would be following with Slack. Right. And as I said, you know, it was all well-received when it happened in the chip sector. I think this is just a natural extension, and I would think that maybe you'll see more of it in different parts of the technology stuff. Well, we know Salesforce is acquisitive, and the other thing is our Bloomberg Intelligence analyst saying that, listen, their stock's up 50%. They do a stock deal. It's pretty easy for them to do, right? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the run-up that they've seen. What does it mean for uh, those of us who use Slack? That's the big question. (laughs) Changes. Yeah. (laughs) Always when there's a deal. All right, uh, JJ, thanks so much. JJ Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, on the phone from Chicago, checking out my turkey. Well, my husband's turkey. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.